Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Noel Smith, Chief Investment Officer at Convex Asset Management. Noel, welcome. Thanks for having me today. So let's maybe get a bit of a, a background to who you are. Um, I know you as a prop trader and, and uh, a keen observer of markets, but if you could give the audience a bit of a background and, and your history. Sure. Um, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, and I came up as a trader on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. In 1996, I started trading. And um, what we did at that time is we were like the guys you see on TV. You know, We all wore colorful jackets and we made markets in the options marketplace for people to buy and sell options. And that was my only job in life. And we worked at a firm together, me and my associates, my coworkers and people that worked for me. And our job was to make and take markets within the options market. And how did you actually get then involved in finance? What was the driving factor for why you would actually want to be, be trading? Funny story that we didn't really discuss. So um, I initially wanted to be in, in neuroscience. My degree was in biochemistry. And my plan was really to be uh, you know, probably a neurosurgeon. So I worked for a neurosurgeon when I was younger. And what I did was I had opened up the phone book. And this is you know, 1985, 86, and there was no internet. So if you wanted to get to know somebody that you didn't know, you had to pick up the phone and call them. So I made up a story that I was doing a term paper on several different doctors' specialties. And I asked them if I could c- come meet with them and ask them um, you know, questions about their job, you know, pediatrician, you know, a dentist, neurosurgeon, whatever. And um, so I became more focused on neuroscience because I thought it was simply the most interesting. So I started volunteering at a local hospital when I was still in high school. And that was my plan. So then I figured out that the medical school was going to be shelved for a year for me. And I was still planning on doing that, but I had to put it on the shelf for a year. And in that interim time, um, a buddy of mine asked if I wanted to become a stockbroker, which is basically a salesman. And I didn't really know what that meant. And over the course of that year, I anticipated, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't do well in the beginning. I very much did poorly. But by the end of that year, I had actually done very well financially. And that was a very strong inducement to stay in the business. And also in the time of that year, I met a guy that was an options trader. And I didn't really know what that meant. But what I did figure out about him is that he was much richer than me and worked a lot less hard than me. So common sense told me that I should be interested in what he's doing because it seems like a better deal than what I'm doing. So I, uh, I started to pursue that when I was a pretty young guy. And being from Chicago and just luck- luckily, I lived in a place that is really the global head of derivatives trading. So in the 90s, that's what I did. I started out as a clerk, which basically meant I got coffee and tacos and things like that for people. And I uh, worked my way up. It's incredible. And, and so in terms of that process, you were then actually on the, you know, on the floor in Chicago uh, trading. Absolutely. And, yes. and what were you trading at the time? So the, the pits are broken down into different stocks. So in, say for one instance, in one pit, you might have uh, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, and AT&T. Okay. You know, maybe a dozen different names in that pit. And then there are, you know, a dozen, maybe 40 or 50 different pits around the floor. It's a very large building. And so you go into a pit and you trade whatever is in that pit. 
So when somebody wants to trade ExxonMobil or Microsoft options, you are the marketplace. You and the people that you stand next to, you collectively provide a price in which to buy options or sell options. So you're effectively a market maker for a particular security. Exactly correct. And so as you think about the transition from being on the pit there to the type of trading we see today where everything's so digital, how did you, you know, transition through that period? Well, it's a long and winding road. So the transformation from pit trading to electronic trading is not as different as many people think. So when you're a pit trader, there's a, there's a convention that everyone knows. So say a guy walks into the pit and he wants to trade with you. If you're the first person to physically raise your hand, if you raise your hand first, what you're saying is that I am the fastest and therefore I, am the, I have the latitude to trade all, as much of this as I want. So say there's 10 guys in the pit, but there's only two options to trade. If you're first, then you can take one or two. You can split it up with somebody else at your discretion, or you can take both of them. Um, if there are 10,000 options, then you have the discretion to take all 10,000 or split it amongst the guys in the crowd. Digital or electronic trading isn't that different because what, what people are really trying to do is they're trying to be the first hand waver. What they're really trying to do is they're trying to electronically get there first so that they can indicate to the people that are looking to trade that they also want to trade and they want the, the discretion or the latitude in which to trade all of it or part of it. So the trade logic, although it's moved from the, you know, the analog space to the digital space, it's really not that different. It's fascinating because I think a lot of people have sort of got a little bit of a, a feel for this type of trading through the book by Michael Lewis, Flash Boys, um, mm -hmm. with this high-frequency trading that was going on. How does high-frequency trading sort of differ from what you do? Well, high-frequency trading is market making. So if you are high-frequency trading, um, at least in the option space, and there are different ways this can be done, but for simplicity, let's talk about options or, or stocks. What you're really doing is you are the first person in line to provide a bid or an offer for something that somebody else wants to buy. So if, if you are a, a chocolate bar market maker and the first person you know, to say, I want to buy chocolate bars or I want to sell chocolate bars, um, it, it doesn't matter what it is really. It can be anything. But you are saying that I am going to be the marketplace for this particular product or, or a participant within that same marketplace. So that's what really a market maker is doing. High frequency trading is really just a way of getting there first. It is the, it is the ability to raise your hand first in the pit and you're saying that um, I'm super serious about this decision. I want to be there first. And I want the discretion to do as much of this trade as I want. And so then the natural evolution is then what is prop trading? So prop trading, imagine if you just had you know, an E-Trade account or something like that. So now you're trading you know, Microsoft stock on your own at your laptop and whatever else. And things go really well for you. Then you decide to hire an assistant. And then now there's two of you. And then time marches on and there's 10 of you. Prop trading is really trading with your own money. So what you're doing is you're trying to enter the marketplace and you're trying to take money out of the marketplace through whatever mechanisms you think you can to outsmart the globe, which is a very difficult job. So a prop trading firm is really not that different than a hedge fund other than there's no outside money. You simply trade your own money. So if I wanted to start you know, Noel and Alex prop firm right now, um, just say for instance, I had the capital. So I had you know, $50 million of my own money. And I decided that you had something that you was useful to me and I wanted to hire you. And we had $50 million to trade collectively. And I say, okay, Alex, uh, you know, you can take 10 million, I'll take 40, let's go. This is, the, this is our business. And then um, you, know, you decide you want an assistant, I decided I want an assistant and there's four of us. And that is what we're doing. We are not taking any outside money. 
We are not marketing to anybody and we have no public presence whatsoever. We can trade from a broom closet, you know, in a hotel. Nobody knows and nobody cares. I'm curious then how many people are, are doing this? Is this pretty common? Or are we, we hear the names of Optiva and Citadel and so forth that are in this space, but are there a much bigger sort of next audience that go, comes down? Of course, it's much, it's much larger than that. So Chicago and New York really are the, the hubs of, of prop trading. Nowadays, you can be a prop trader from anywhere, but most of the, the storied prop trading firms come from either New York or Chicago. Uh, Optiver is out of Amsterdam. There's a few other firms, you know, kind of globally. But uh, the ideas and the logic are really born in the pits of mainly Chicago. And then they've kind of blossomed out from there. But, uh, you know, there are many, many prop, prop, prop firms, but you have to bear in mind that, you know, for every Citadel Securities, which has, I think, 1,500 people or something like that, or Optiver that maybe has 600, you know, there are many firms that have 20 or 30 people. And these firms can make more money than you would probably guess. And so what then are they doing? What are they trading? Are they trading relative value trades, just trying to pick the 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 momentum that's out there, reading sentiment, looking at different options, sure. individual securities? I, I don't want to give you a, a wishy-washy answer, but the answer really is anything you can think of. I mean, there's guys t- trading soybeans versus hogs versus momentum versus the MACD on whatever. And any possible combination of things you can think of, it's out there. And so you mentioned a little bit about sort of the need to raise your hand the quickest. How much does technology and, and software almost play a role in making sure that you can trade and, and be able to move with the market you know, with almost instant uh, reaction times? Depends on what your goal is. So ideally what you want is to be the fastest and have the most discretion to do whatever you want. But that comes at a price. So sometimes what you realize is that, okay, I want to be first, but the price of being first is going to be hundred million dollars and, you know, seven years of research and a lot of IT and a lot of uh, connectivity and gobs of red tape. So you say, okay, well, I don't want to spend a hundred million dollars. I don't have a hundred million dollars. So I'm going to spend $10 million and I'm going to be 16th. So is 16th better than first? Of course not. But maybe you can accomplish a lot of those same goals by being 16th. So if you want to go out and buy Apple stock and you want to hold it for a week, it doesn't really matter at all if you get there first. So, because you're not really making a market at that point, what you're doing is you are making an investment. You're saying, I want to own Apple. Maybe it'd be for a day or a year or 10 years. Um, Then there's no real benefit to spending all that money to become a very fast market maker. But if you are in a position where you want to take a position in Apple stock or Apple options for a nanosecond, then offload it on somebody else as quickly as possible with very little risk, then you have to pay. And that's a very difficult domain. It's not even the money. Because if it was just the money, then, you know, Blackstone would do all of it. It is a combination of, you know, if I gave you the nuclear codes uh, and sort of the nuclear schematics on how to build a bomb, that doesn't mean you're going to have a bomb tomorrow. You still have to figure out a lot of stuff. You have to figure out your fissile material. You have to figure out where to mine it. You have to figure out how to enrich it. There's so many things to do to, to make a bomb. And there are so many things to do in order to become a world-class market maker. And it's not just money. Let's go then looking at, at, a, at a trader then, right? So moving away from market, market maker to a trader, what actually makes a good trader, would you say? That's a very elusive answer. I've hired something, or something north of 100 people that I all thought were very smart people to work for me to trade. And all of them have some level of, of genetic intelligence. Most of them didn't make money. I thought all of them would make money. Most of them didn't. And as somebody who's 
using his personal assets to back these guys, I couldn't possibly have more of a vested interest in their success. Um, what makes a good trader is more nebulous than most people, including me, would like to tell you. It is not just the smartest guy or the most well-capitalized guy or girl. There are. It is the confluence of many things. I would say the most predictive part of success in being a trader is enthusiasm and willingness to learn. I've seen people that are very intelligent, that are kind of lazy about it, fail, and to their own surprise. And I've seen people that are maybe not as gifted intelligently or genetically, and they just don't give up. And maybe you know they have a harder go at it, but they still have this um, this burning desire to do it. And those te- those types of people typically fail less often. I'm curious, do you see the opportunity for success and less failure happening? Like, so for example, as time gets longer, are you, you know, are you able to, to make money easier through that? No, it's harder. It's harder because um, 30 years ago or whatever, you know, you could become friends with somebody that was, a, um, you know, that had a seat at the board of trade or the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And that guy could say to you, you know, hey, Joe, you know, stand next to me and, you know, eventually you'll get your wings and, you know, you can do your own thing. And he would, he would kind of take you under his wing and help you out. Now you have to have a lot of um, quantitative skills. You have to have a lot more programming skills. And some of the things that were relevant for the floor are no longer relevant. So the skill set is changed. But I've also found that the most successful traders still have some of those exact same qualities. It's fascinating because I think one of the things that people feel, particularly in a lot of the institutional allocator space, is that more time in the market, more education, uh, you know, longer time horizon gives you much more opportunity to, to be successful. It doesn't seem that that's the case. It is and it isn't. So if you, I've, I've, I know guys that are considerably younger than me and they work for big brand name firms. And you know, when they first started at, say, 25, you know, they had a trade and they would do that trade and they would kill it. They would absolutely do well. And then guess what happens at some point? They lose all the money. And they either get fired or they get admonished or something like that. Because if you don't know any better than to do a trade, see, an old guy has seen the landscape of risk and typically will be more cautious. Whereas a young guy will rush into a burning building to do whatever and try to make this trade and do his best to make a lot of money or her best to make a lot of money. And for some period of time, through luck or whatever, can be very successful. And they get emboldened by that. But the typical pattern is that you, know, you have a young individual starting at a large firm. They, they're on you know, the options desk and their job is to sell volatility. And that works great for two, three, four, five years. They make all this money and they, you know, they blow away all the indexes and all this other stuff. And then they, they, lose, they lose it all by the time they walk up the next day. That's very normal. And, you know, it's up to the risk manager to make sure that that doesn't happen too frequently. But a lot of people confuse luck with intelligence. And it is really both. It's funny. I think about the motorcycle racing as as one area where when you're young, you're much more willing to take risk, go a little bit harder into corners, push Mm -hmm. a bit faster and harder. And uh, you you saw Valentino Rossi was very successful for many years as a young, young rider. Getting older... I don't know. Maybe he's just not willing to take the risk that he used to as a young young person. So it's yeah. an interesting evolution of risk and how people perceive risk. I'm curious as to whether anything that you learned through your time trying to understand neuroscience, that that helps you sort of understand or have a better perception of risk. I would say no. I would think that my, my education is the, the most useful thing out of my education was a strong background in science. And I really learned how to learn. 
that was probably the most useful thing. But there's not a lot of intersection between biological sciences and finance. So mostly no. I'm curious then, is there any potential type of education that you can do that can actually help you understand the markets and the environment that you trade in? So I'm, I've never been a gambler, but I would say that probably the most raw education you can get would be at a poker table because there is a lot of crossover between managing your stack of chips and managing your, your book, you know, and how to apportion risk, what to do, when to go all in, when not to go all in, when to, when to be coy. There, you know, typically there are, is more intersection between gamblers and traders than, you know, biochemists and, and traders. And nowadays, you know, it is, again, it's a, it's a little different because you typically have, you know, physicists or the computer science people, but even though they definitely have the intellectual heft to participate, there is still some X factor of just genetic decision-making sometimes or why that decision is being made or when to change the algorithm. Because typically the most money is being made when nobody has seen this yet, like a pandemic. Okay. So say you had an algorithm that traded everything perfectly and you're making zillions of dollars, but what is the likelihood that your algorithm is being trained with pandemics in mind? Very unlikely. It's never happened before. So all of your data is worthless. So now you can say, okay, I have Tick data going back a thousand years, and I know everything about everything. My algorithm is amazing. Throw in a global pandemic and let me know how your algorithm does, because it does terribly. And that's the reason that a lot of veteran traders can do really well in times like you know a pandemic or a 2008 crash or you know 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, and you know younger guys that are looking at a program to give them information. Well, the program is only good as the information that's being fed into it. So. In absence of a complete data set and all data is never all knowable, your algorithms and your plan basically fails. So it's funny because when I, when I hear you talk about that, I think, well, it actually gets easier to forecast a day or two days ahead or even within the next 10 minutes as opposed to forecasting one week, two years, 10 years out. Totally fair to say. It's just funny because as allocators, we try to make these very long-term predictions around expected returns for all different types of asset classes and underlying securities. And it seems like... It's really just a, a finger in the air. You know, there is more luck than anybody wants to admit. Everybody wants to be um, lauded as being super smart and super educated and super experienced. And there is a collective, you know, what, what is wisdom? Wisdom is really just an algorithm, right? You're taking all your past experiences and you're putting it into your present judgment. That is useful. But, it, you know, also knowing your limitations and knowing when to cut your risk totally irrespective of what you think is going to happen is also very useful. I cannot tell you how many stocks I thought were good ones that went to zero or stocks that I had thought had no business going up that kept going up. I mean, Tesla, Tesla is a great example. Teslas are cool cars. I think they're nice. But do I think Tesla stock is a good value? No, I think it's, it's ridiculous to me. I, and I'm not, I'm not even remotely you know, talking about you know, the uh, ARC funds or Catherine Wood or any of these people that come up with these, you know, seemingly ridiculous valuations, or maybe I lack the vision to see what she sees. Fair enough. But I, I, I could go back and look at Amazon. You know, there's, you know, years, a long time ago when Amazon was barely breaking even and they had, they had all this revenue, but they didn't make any profits. And so if you were doing a discounted cash flow model on Amazon, you had really no business in buying Amazon stock. But here we are, the stock's going up and now it's, you know, $2,000, $3,000. Well, to that end then, how much do you then take into consideration sentiment, narratives, that, that drive None. flow? None. Um, the, the sentiment and narratives are 
to me, almost worthless unless you're just going to go on TV and talk about it. And you need to have a story to, to talk because, you know, there's this old saying in finance, which is so true. Why did the stock go up? Why did the stock go down? More buyers than sellers. So, you know, follow the money is really the only thing that matters. So if you figure out why more money should be going into something versus going out of something. Now, maybe the reason a stock is going up is because there's a hedge fund blowing out and they have to cover their shorts. Or maybe there's a stock going down because a hedge fund's blowing out and has to cover their longs. There are hundreds of reasons that's, that can be totally counterintuitive that you don't know. That if you try to know all these unknowable things, you're going to drive yourself crazy. And that's one of the reasons that I actually have always gravitated toward volatility trading because volatility is just a probabilistic function. And for me, once you kind of get down volatility as an asset class, I think it's actually easiest to trade, which is, of course, why I do it. Is that also because it's quite difficult to manage such very large portfolios? If you talk about a $50 billion portfolio, $1 billion portfolio, you can always trade volatility. There's always enough of it, but the potential risk of moving stocks because you're too large of a player gets very difficult. I don't want to talk out of, out of turn. I've never run a $50 billion book. So um, it would be inappropriate for me to comment on why, how some of these firms do this. I, I, I kind of know. But in fairness, nobody's ever given me $50 billion and said, okay, go figure it out. I don't really know if I was in charge of a massive fund like that, how I would do things. I know that you have to go into the deepest and biggest liquid markets. You have to go into you know, currencies and you have to go into bonds and all these things. Um, you know, good luck buying, you know, 50,000 Tesla straddles. It's just never going to happen. So there are markets for certain dollar AUMs and there are other markets for other different market AUMs. The problem is that when you get into the strata of, you know, 10 or 20 or $50 billion, there is not that many ways you can you know, extract alpha from that. You know, but if you have a, you know, a $500,000 E-Trade account, there's a zillion different things you can do. And there is balance between there. There is a whole spectrum of things that you can do with, you know, $10 million or $100 million or $500 million. Um, our strategies scale to something around a billion dollars. If you gave me $50 billion and you said, do your best, I don't know that I would beat anybody else. And if I told you otherwise, it would just be a lot. It's interesting because we are seeing a real consolidation of capital around the world in Australia also, just bigger and bigger funds. And there's always this question about how can a small fund compete? Um, they don't have the scale, but clearly there seems to be an opportunity for them to be a bit more nimble in how they think about it. I personally think that the reason a lot of money is going into the same funds is because the allocators don't want to get fired. If you are an allocator and you can give more money to Ken Griffin or you can give money to you know, Joe Jones down the street, the chance of you, if you, if you make 30% with Joe Jones you're not going to get that much more of a raise versus if you if Joe loses your money, you'll probably get fired. So I think it is a job risk decision for many allocators. That doesn't mean that Joe Jones isn't a better trade than Citadel or you know, Izzy Englander or something like that. But that is, I think, the nuance of the job, which is to balance risk worth reward, which is exactly what I do. Um, you have to try to figure out who is the best trade, what is the best trade, and at what point does this stop becoming useful for me? So I'm curious, you know, as a as a history, as a prop trader, you now as you've started a hedge fund, why that transition? It's really quite logical. So as somebody who's been an observer of the prop community and also the hedge fund community for my entire professional career, let's call it 25 years, I look at hedge funds that make 10% or 12% and they think they're amazing. 
And I look at prop firms that are consistently cranking out, you know, 100%, 500%, numbers that people don't really believe. They're so good, they sound like they're fake. And there's just a huge gap between these numbers. There is a void within the marketplace where you can take some of these sophisticated strategies and you can bring them to investors. And the feedback that, that we've had is nobody's ever seen this stuff in the way that we've done it. So it is a just a, a very normal answer, which is we think we can build a better mousetrap. And so then how do you then go about building a portfolio? Are you then ultimately uh, funding a number of different portfolio managers that are all sort of trading different ideas that then come into the broader portfolio? Ah, that's a good question. Because it's, it's, the answer is yes, but no. So when I ran my prop firm, you know, you have, say you have four desks, right? You have desk A, B, C, and D. And each one of those desks has an employee or a team of employees. So the, the dream for the, the manager is that all four desks simultaneously make all this money. But in reality, you know, sometimes desk A makes money, desk B loses money, desk C does okay, and desk, you know, you know C does or desk D does whatever. So what, what happens in real life is that when there's a desk underperforming as the manager, you have to decide to add money to them, fire them, or do whatever. Firing people that are smart and competent because of something that is maybe bad luck or bad timing is a very difficult decision because you don't know when their luck is going to turn around. So, and you know this person, you know this, this team of people, you know that they have children and whatever else. So it's a difficult decision. So realistically, what happens is that you tend to hold on to these trades longer than maybe you should. So what we've done is we've taken those exact same strategies and we brought them in and we don't have employees running these individual sleeves of ideas. We do it ourselves. And if the opportunity set for a certain environment isn't good, we just don't allocate it to it. We don't have to fire anybody. We don't have to worry about their workman's comp or their dental plan. We just take the chips off the table for that trade. We push them towards something else that is working really well. Like, let's look at lumber versus you know, copper versus um, you know, utility stocks. Are utility stocks bad? No, there's nothing wrong with utility stocks. They haven't been working that well this year. Is lumber good? It's wood. It's super useful, but it's been doing really great lately. Well, it was down a lot today and stuff, but my point is that it's not that lumber is good or bad in 2021 or 2019 or 2025. It's that there's an environment for any one of these ideas. If you have the market awareness, if you have the trading acumen to know when to participate in lumber and when to participate in utility stocks without having to fire a whole team of traders, it makes you better. How do you then think about the diversification across the portfolio, making sure that all these different strategies are somewhat uncorrelated? Well, that, that's another fakeism within the it's within the business. Most trades, if you boil them down to their essence, are either short volatility or long volatility. Most of the trades that, you know, say there's a suite of 30 different strategies that are common, you know, 25 of them have the essential same risk profile. So, you know, what is the correlation of bonds and stocks? Well, Bridgewater would tell you that they're negatively correlated. There are periods of time where they're positively correlated. If stocks and bonds go down at the same time, Bridgewater is going to get murdered. And people that have a 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds will get murdered. So I, as a manager, have to understand that correlations are dynamic and they're spurious. And the change of their change changes. So we have to have an awareness of why is lumber moving? Why are stocks and bonds going down together? Is it because SoftBank is blowing out of their position or is it because interest rates are moving en masse across the globe through some kind of globally synchronized rate hike? There are many different reasons that these things can happen. And I personally think it takes a lifetime to figure it out. And I'm still figuring it out and learning it every day. 
but there are they're innumerable. And I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that it is always different. And it is, you have to look at what's going on right now. And it's always a little bit idiosyncratic because if it wasn't idiosyncratic, there would be a computer program written to take all of the money out of that trade. And then whoever wrote that program would be a multi-billionaire. It's interesting you talk about the idiosyncraticities of, of potential trades, because I think there's a lot of people in portfolio management that look to macro as their driving factors for asset allocation and so forth. You're saying that the opportunity comes from the idiosyncratic risks that, that are available out there. Not necessarily. It is the nexus of those things. So if you're not paying attention to what's going on with macro stuff, if you're not looking at you know trade imbalances or balances, and you're not looking at the PMI, you're not looking at the jobs number, then you won't have any kind of real awareness of what's going on with interest rates. And if you're not looking at interest rates, then you don't really have any feel for what's going on with your financial stock portfolio. And you don't really know what's going on with your utilities. You don't really know how that affects your tech stocks. You don't have an awareness of a lot of things. Everything's connected to everything else. You know, the ear bone's connected to the, the finger bone at some level. And sometimes they're not as important as they are at other times, but knowing how they can be connected can be very useful. I'm curious, you talked a little bit about risk profiles and the need to understand that. Uh, you know, vol targeting has become a really common strategy, particularly for institutional mm-hmm. investors. Curious to get your thoughts about that as a, as a strategy um, for for institutional allocators and also the ability to maybe capture volatility, you know, long vol style strategies. Sure. I, I love vol targeting strategies because I know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so what I do is I front run them. And there's a great way for me to make money because I know that I'm more nimble than they are. So I know if they're targeting a 12% volatility that they're going to sell equities down a certain percentage and they're going to have to buy them back and they're going to chase equities back up the other way around. So knowing what their time slice is, if I know if their vol target is 12% over 90 days, 14% over 65 days, et cetera, then once that data set drops out of sample, then you know that the volatility number is going to change. So if there is a, a VIX event, you know, 365 days ago or 264 trading days, then you know that once that drops out of sample, your new moving forward data sample set is going to change. And there it's going to coerce these other people to make decisions that are not necessarily their economic interest. But again, they're tied to a very rigid set of instructions. But if you know that those instructions are rigid and you can see what they're going to do in the future, you can front run them. It's pretty easy. And I don't mean front run in a legal sense. I just mean that you know you can get long the trade that you think they're going to do in anticipation of them getting long the trade. I'm curious then as to what impact does this type of strategies have, like these volatility strategies or, or even different call and put options have in actually moving the market? You know, is it the, the tail wagging the dog? It is. So um, there's this, this phrase that was invented not that long ago, not by me, that you know the the stock market has become a derivative of the options market. And I think it's pretty, it's a pretty wise observation. There are a couple things here that um, you've, you've, you've pointed out that I think are very important. Market participants, by virtue of them congregating and these are uh, going toward these same strategies, are they're creating their own demise by having correlation risk. When everything goes down at the same time and everybody's rushing for the exits at the same time, you know, everything is fine for a while, and then everybody has these trades on, then everybody gets killed at the same time. And the reason is correlation risk. So what you have in real life is you don't have a sine wave or a, a normally distributed 
kind of marketplace where if it goes down, it goes down and then it keeps going down and the, the, the tail gets a little skinnier through time. What you really have is kind of more of a, a double hump. It's more of a binary marketplace because in reality, what happens is, is that if you're a market maker and things start going against you, you pull your bids. And so back on the floor, what would happen is if, if you started losing too much money, you would just leave. You would leave the floor. You would walk to the bathroom. You'd go upstairs. You'd go home. If you're electronic, you do the same thing. So if you're saying that I'm going to buy Microsoft stock for X, and then you keep losing, you keep losing, you keep losing, all of a sudden you just stop buying Microsoft stock. And you know your risk manager taps you on the shoulder and says, please stop buying Microsoft stock because this is not working for us. So then what happens is there's a liquidity vacuum. And then the volatility of the new prices are disjointed and they're at a different level and volatility jumps. And that is a phenomenon that is more violent for more people than they're equipped for. And that's why we carry, we inventory volatility hedges at all times, because we know that if there is a crash and I'm not predicting a crash, I'm not saying the market's going down, but you know, say there's a meteor that hits the world tomorrow and there's a crash, you have to have that stuff in inventory already because by the time you need it, it's much too expensive to pay for it. It's probably a sale. If you want to buy volatility when the market is down 20%, good luck because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you probably your career. Uh, it's an interesting conversation around liquidity. Uh, a lot of people have sort of suggested that liquidity has really dried up over the last few years as more and more money has just gone into passive. It's sat there. There's not the active trades that are going on. Have you seen the same experience in terms of liquidity just not being there anymore? Absolutely. So there's, there's gobs of liquidity at a certain level. So if nothing's going on, you know, VIX is hovering around 12. There's more liquidity, more liquidity than you know what to do with. If you want to trade a billion dollars worth of stuff, no problem. But again, it is not a normal distribution. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't fully understand. They expect that if you know, XYZ is down 5%, they can sell some percentage of the portfolio. If it's down 7%, they can sell the next you know, tranche of it. If it's down 12%, they can sell the next tranche. Nonsense. They cannot. What happens is they can sell all they want down 1%. They can sell a little bit less down 3%. And if the, if the thing is down 15, 20, 30, 40%, you're not going to be selling it until the other person, your counterparty, is unbelievably certain that they're going to make money from you. And that's it. And then, you know, then you, you know, you've managed to lose five years of effort in a matter of seconds. I guess then the final question is really then how do you go about protecting your money in this type of environment? Well, what we do is, I mean, that's basically the premise of our business, is we we warehouse and we inventory crash protection. And then our real job is to pay for it because crash protection is expensive. That's why tail risk hedge funds always lose money until then you know, market crashes once every 10 years, they make some of it back. You have to inventory these things and you have to trade around them. And if you don't, I don't know how they make money. And you know, if your strategy is just to you know, be long Microsoft because it's a great stock, then that can work for some period of time, maybe 30, 40 years. But eventually it will go down and it's, it's going to be very nasty. And it's probably not going to be 40 years. It's probably going to be four years. And if you're in the options market and you're trying to harvest volatility premium or something like that, it gets even more violent. And you know those trades, that's, that's where you hear these stories of guys having these spectacular blowups. Um, but most of those stories are not by real professionals. They're usually by amateurs that are lured in by these very expensive premiums that they think they can make all this money. And they do, and they do, and they do, and then they don't. And in terms of other particular trades to actually hedge, what do you do in that case? Do you just run a higher level of cash or you have some real strict protection? 
We have very strict protection. Um, the one thing I love about options is that the risk is known exactly at the time of execution. If you buy Apple stock, um, you know, in theory, you can ride Apple stock down to zero. Um, I guess in the, in the case of like crude futures, you can ride it less than zero. There are extraordinary things that can happen. But if you buy an Apple option, the most you can lose is all of your money. And if you know that all of your money that within its pro-rated investment decision is sufficient for you not to blow out, then you can continue to do business. And conversely, if you sell options, you need to know that the risk limits are everywhere between zero and infinity. If you're selling calls, you should price that option to infinity. And if you are selling puts, then you should price that option to zero. It can go all the way down and then stop. So, you know, if you are doing risk-defined trades, then you always know what is the craziest thing you've ever heard of times 10? That can happen. It's probably going to happen tomorrow. But if you have those with limits in at time of inception, while it's not good news, you always know the deal. And that's why I think options are, in general, a very good. The whole point of options is to be a risk mitigation product. That's what they do. That's why they are invented. Well, Noel Smith, been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.